Thank you for joining us for this archive of Teaching American History's Saturday webinar for Saturday, October 5th, 2019. The subject of this webinar was Alexander Hamilton and is in our American Minds series of Saturday webinars for the 2019-2020 school year. For more information about our free webinars, go to teachingamericanhistory.org and from the homepage, select Programs and then Webinars. Well, welcome everybody to another uh, teachingamericanhistory.org Saturday webinar sponsored by Ashbrook at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading online resource for the documents-based study of American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens. I'm Chris Burkett. I teach here at Ashland University. Um, the theme of our webinar series this year is American Minds. And just in case you're joining us for the first time, uh, the purpose of these webinars is to pull together some some interesting minds, some interesting scholars, some some people who have thought about uh, the, the people we're going to be talking about, and uh, we'll have a conversation for about an hour or so on uh, people who have had an influence on the American mind or somehow reflect the American mind. And we're taking our bearings of that term, the American mind, from a phrase Thomas Jefferson used, a letter to uh, Henry Lee. So, um, all of you, please join into the conversation by uh, submitting questions in the chat box. And we'll get to as many of those as possible, but please make sure you send those. Uh, don't send those to me privately. Send those to everybody so everybody can see them, including our panelists today. And if they decide there's a question that comes up that they want to they want to jump on, they're certainly free to do that. So, so again, please submit questions. Um, in the next week, you'll receive an email with a link uh, to request a certificate of participation, and that will also include a link to the archived video and audio from today's program. As always, we've recommended some readings, some, some documents from our uh, pretty extensive collection of uh, original documents at TAH.org, and I'm looking forward to seeing what our panelists and, and, and others think about those documents today. So, of course, today we're discussing Alexander Hamilton, and I'm happy to introduce uh, our panelists and scholars for today, Rob McDonald of the United States Military Academy and Greg McBrayer of Ashland University. So thanks again for both of you, uh, to both of you for uh, joining us this morning. Great to be here. Chris. So I always start by saying I'm, I'm just, you know, to get into this conversation of this really interesting figure, uh, I, I, I just make a suggest a, a few things at the beginning, but you're always welcome to ignore my suggestions and talk about whatever you think is interesting about Hamilton. But uh, I'm hoping we get into his mind. That's what really one of the purposes, I think, of these webinars is to, as much as possible, through the documents and through through your all, you know, knowledge of, of Hamilton, try to get into how he actually thought about things, how he viewed things, what his motives were, who was the real Hamilton. And I'm especially hoping that we could get into uh, uh, his understanding of what republicanism was or republican government was, because that seems to be at the heart, I think, or at least part of the the, the heart of the disagreement between him and Jefferson and Madison, um, at least in terms of their sort of overarching public rhetoric. They, they you know, they seem to be uh, um, have very different arguments with regard to what real republican government would be like. But uh, but before that, if you don't mind, can I start with the, I'm going to start with a question for Rob. Um, part of the part of the, as you know, uh, <laughs> Hamilton's uh, he's the craze right now, right? I mean, he's got his own musical and all that, which is great for Hamilton. But can you speak to his reputation? Because it seems to me, for a while, Hamilton was sort of a forgotten guy, or maybe fell into disrepute. 
uh, over the course of U.S. history? And how do, how do we explain this, uh, this sort of resurgence of interest in Hamilton? Or how do we think of Hamilton's place in U.S. history? It's a great question. I mean, um, I, I would start off by giving a shout out to a couple of different books. Um, one is uh, Steve Knott's great book on, on Hamilton and his reputation. Uh, and another is uh, the classic 1960 study by Merrill Peterson called The Jefferson Image in the American Mind. And, you know, I think a point that everyone would agree upon is that uh, in general terms, when Hamilton is up, Jefferson is down. When Jefferson is up, Hamilton is down. Um, Jefferson at, at Monticello uh, actually had in his entrance hall uh, two busts. One was a, a bust of Alexander Hamilton, um, and it was facing a, a bust of himself. And, um, you know, during his retirement, so this is after uh, Hamilton's death in, in 1804, during Jefferson's retirement, you know, he would welcome people to Monticello and they would note the bust of Hamilton and um, he would sort of say, opposed in death as in life. And I think that's true. I mean, I think that, um, you know, throughout American history, um, when people have uh, appreciated the virtues of Alexander Hamilton, it maybe causes them to think less of Thomas Jefferson and, and vice versa. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I've always just been fascinated by the fact that uh, it seems as though Jefferson's always, or seems to be, uh, have, have had much more sort of longevity in terms of the, the founder that, that Americans have traditionally held up on the pedestal, so to speak, as representative of the founding. It's but, true. I mean, you know, I, I would say that, uh, well, first of all, I, I like, I kind of like both Hamilton and Jefferson, just as people. I think they're really fascinating. I think they're sure. really interesting and admirable. Um, but, but as far as the musical is concerned, and, you know, I don't claim to be an expert on it. I, I have not seen it. I've listened to the music. But it seems to me that one of the secrets of Hamilton's current success is that he's kind of been rehabilitated as a Jeffersonian. I mean, you know, he, he comes across as the small D Democrat, the person who, um, you know, is the advocate for the little guy and the common man and the immigrant. And I'm not sure that that's a, a fully accurate portrayal of, you know, his own political theory. Sure. Yeah. And, and, I, and I, that doesn't seem to me at all how Jefferson tried to portray him either, right? No, and certainly not how Jefferson <laughs> tried to portray him. Yeah, that's fascinating. So I know there was a, a resurgence of interest in Hamilton a little bit around the turn of the 20th century with, with progressives who seemed to revive him. And there was a kind of love-hate relationship between progressives with Hamilton for a while. I mean, what they seemed to admire about Hamilton was um, his his willingness to expand the role and the, the influence and authority of the national government. But even the progressives tended to portray uh, Hamilton as too un, sort of undemocratic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In sense, but. I think that's very true. I mean, and, you know, I've, I've seen it uh, played out sort of on the local level in West Point where I teach. Um our 200th anniversary was in 1802. I'm sorry, it was in 2002. It was founded in 1802 by Thomas Jefferson during his presidency. Um, and in 2002, you know, we had a conference on Thomas Jefferson. And uh, soon thereafter, we built a new library building, which we named after Thomas Jefferson. But in looking at the centennial celebrations in 1902, Theodore Roosevelt was there. Um, Elihu Root, uh, Secretary of War, was there. Um, and both of them hated Thomas Jefferson. I mean, yeah. they really uh, looked down upon him in part because of what they took to be his overly specific view of foreign policy. Right. And Roosevelt and, you know, Albert Thayer Mahan, um, you know, very much wanted uh, a large ocean-going Navy. Um, Jefferson had a small little gunboats that were you know, <laughs> tended to be defensive. Right. So, yeah, there is some shade there. 
Yeah, and it's, again, it's interesting how uh, how uh, the, the sort of importance of these figures in the public mind and how they're portrayed in the public mind is often a reflection of sort of the leading statesmen and their their understanding of. So you mentioned foreign policy. So they they had a tendency, it seems to me, to portray Hamilton almost as an imperialist of sorts, or at least uh, somebody who's leaning toward an imperial mindset with regard to foreign policy. And 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 they were pro-imperialism. So yeah, yeah right, <laughs> of course. Whereas today, well, and I don't know uh, that this will naturally come up um, given the documents that we've selected, but I think one of the things that weighs down Jefferson's reputation today is the fact that he owned slaves, and uh, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, in the lead up to the American Civil War, Jefferson's reputation was actually um, diminished in the American South because the fact of the matter is, of all the members of his generation who held office, no one did more than Thomas Jefferson to propose measures that were designed to chip away at the seemingly impenetrable edifice of slavery. Um, so he was anti-slavery, but you know he himself felt as if he was almost inextricably enmeshed in the institution. And Hamilton's status as you know this new arrival and this northerner, in a way, has generally kept his hands clean on that issue. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, Jefferson's reputation has been tarnished, I would say, definitely within the last twenty years or so, because, or at least in the public mind, his uh, yeah. How do you, how do you how can we admire a guy like Jefferson, given the fact that he owned slaves and didn't get rid of his slaves? That's usually the argument. So, yeah, very fascinating. Um, so, I just, just yeah, Greg, please go ahead. Yeah. I got a couple questions. One uh, for one for Rob, and then one just. So, I, the interesting thing, of course, is the the sort of Hamilton gets charged with imperialism, and Jefferson doesn't seem to suffer that same fate, despite the fact that you know one could easily level, level that same charge against him. I mean, he's the one who sort of really gives um, coinage to the phrase uh, an empire of liberty, right, in one of his letters. So you, do, you see a similar imperial ambition in him. But the other question I had for Rob actually was, you mentioned sort of academic historians, um, not and, and Merrill Peterson, but uh, what do you think? I mean, surely the, the popular historians' books are also very influential in, in reviving the reputation of Hamilton. And I guess I was just wondering if you could speak, if you could, I don't know, about the relationship between academic and popular history and the role of each in trying to keep these things alive. Great question. It is a really great question because, uh, you know, I, I think uh, many of the things that we write as academics, we're lucky if our own moms read them, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> whereas, whereas there are people like David McCullough, and maybe to mention David McCullough brings in um, another founder um, with, you know, with whom Jefferson's reputation sometimes moves in tandem. And I'm thinking, of course, of John Adams and my understanding is that when David McCullough was undertaking you know, his big biography of John Adams, which of course resulted in the fantastic HBO miniseries, um, you know, which probably reached even more people than uh, the best-selling book, I see John Moser there. That's fantastic. Hey, John, how are you? How's it going, Rob? Great, great. Um, and John, you're supposed to be on sabbatical. I just want to point out. So I. <laughs> this is a sabbatical weekend. <laughs> So, well, anyway, um, for, for those who are listening, uh, John Bozer just stepped into the picture frame, um, our, our good friend from Ashland, who, who hosts many of these podcasts, as people know. But anyway, uh, David McCullough's book on John Adams, I think originally was intended to be sort of a dual biography of Jefferson and Adams. And um, McCullough just got sucked into John Adams. He has this crackly and cranky and personality, and uh, he tells it as he sees it. Whereas uh, Jefferson, and I think this maybe sets him apart from both 
uh, Adams and Hamilton, you know, really tries to, well, as he wrote multiple times in letters uh, to younger people who sought his advice, always take things by the smooth handle. You know, if you're going to grab a knife, don't, gla- don't grab the blade. And, uh, and so Jefferson tries to soften things up a little bit. And Jefferson tries to take into account his audience uh, when he addresses people and makes arguments. And, hmm. um, and Jefferson, you know, although a friend of the people, maybe to a greater degree than either Hamilton or Adams, um, to a greater degree than Hamilton or Adams is himself an aristocrat born to privilege. And, you know, so he sort of has that easy air about him um, that, that maybe in our modern day makes him seem a little bit less accessible. You mean that's Adams you're talking about, Ron? No, I'm talking about Jefferson. Jefferson, I mean, right. Jefferson, yeah. So uh, landed, landed aristocracy. I mean, this is interesting. Give, uh, uh, there's something very appealing, and I think this also comes through in the musical about Hamilton's own background, right? And the fact that he's, uh, you know, we're not even sure how old he is, are we? Are we sure how old Hamilton actually is? Because I mean, these, like, facts of birth. Um, yeah. Are, are striking. We don't know when Hamilton was born. We don't know if he was born in 1755 or 1757. And yet contrast that to the first memory of Thomas Jefferson's, which is being carried on a pillow as a two-year-old and looking up into the face of a man who was owned by his family. Yeah. Into the face of a slave. I mean, wow. those, those two facts kind of say it all. Yeah. So, and Hamilton really did have to sort of, uh, uh, I don't want to overstate this, but he had to he had to establish himself in in the American colonies, right in in New York, uh, having nothing from his birth to recommend him, essentially, right. So that's a, that in itself is a fascinating story how Hamilton managed to to, to make a name for himself. But it, um, it is, yeah, and you know maybe Greg can speak to that. I feel like I've been talking way too much, but um, sure. Uh, no, I mean, I, I, I've enjoyed listening to what you have to say. I mean, yeah, he's a self-made man. I mean, um, I mean, I'm sure we could talk about his paternity even as in question or some doubt. And so uh, my impression is also that he um, was able to make something of himself uh, in the Caribbean before, you know, sort of was able to parlay that into making making a name for himself in New York. I actually wonder if part of, I mean, when we get to the notes on the federal convention, and I, I wonder if. I wonder if there wasn't a kind of intentionality or an intentional obscuring of his age, uh, and so, in some cases to make himself seem older, in some cases to make himself seem younger, depending upon what the occasion seemed to demand. So uh, that's something that I'm not really sure of. I mean, he was a young man at the Constitutional Convention, 30 or 32, depending on how you count him. Yeah, so. That's, that's, a, that's a great point. And I mean, I think one thing that all of our listeners should appreciate is the extent to which uh, both Hamilton and Jefferson were just exceptional political athletes. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, to, to Greg's point about Hamilton's willingness to, uh, you know, maybe try to have it both ways to be seen as older in some contexts and younger in others, um, just consider the fact that, uh, and we've read Federalist One for this session, for the Federalist Papers, uh, he and Madison and Jay share a singular pseudonym, Publius, yeah. um, because they're uh, trying to achieve unity of voice. And yet in the 1790s, when he's battling Thomas Jefferson. In the newspapers, Hamilton writes under a, a bunch of different pseudonyms, um, you know, medalist, Helvetius, uh, because he's catalyst, because he's trying to, you know, give the sense that there's some sort of broad consensus um, for his views when, in fact, he's penning all of these different essays. Yeah. So he's really a, he's really a self-made man in, in sort of a, I mean, he's making, 
multiple. I mean, it's, it really is a productive thing for him. Maybe the fact that he had to be a self-made man in sort of the conventional sense led him to be more creative in, in these other senses. I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Present yourself as unified when you're not. Present yourself as multiplied when you're not. And it's very impressive. Yeah. My, my understanding, though, is, I mean, look, this is really interesting because of Hamilton's background. And it's, it, it reminds me, he seems, he strikes me as a man of extraordinary ambition. Yes. Um, and uh, even when he was uh, working with Washington as one of his aides during the Revolutionary War, um, his ego, <laughs> Hamilton's ego was pretty big. And there were times when he disagreed very strongly with Washington. In fact, I, uh, he resigned from Washington service in the Revolutionary War, according to Hamilton, over an incident incur- occurred in which uh, Washington embarrassed him in front of another officer. Because Hamilton had managed to sh- he showed up late. He had been detained by official business. Showed up, he said, maybe two minutes late, and, and Washington chastised him from the top of the stairs, looking down on him. It's, it's a stunning things. story. What's that? It's a stunning story. I mean, it really it, it's it's told uh, particularly well by um, a great historian at George Mason University named Pete Henriquez, um, who has a book that came out in 2006 on George Washington. And, uh, you know, he left Washington waiting for him at the top of these stairs at one of their winter headquarters. I think it might have been um, in Morristown, New Jersey. And, you know, Washington is the commander in chief of the Continental Army and is waiting on one of his young aides. And he's standing there and he's waiting and you're not supposed to keep the general waiting. And when Washington expressed his displeasure, uh, Hamilton essentially, you know, Chris, you said he resigned and he, he quit. <laughs> and amazingly, amazingly, yeah. uh, Washington is the one who offered the olive branch um, yeah. and invited him back. Yeah. And I've read the letter, a couple of letters Hamilton wrote after this about the incident. He's, he's very offended by this and call any, even in quotes calls wash refers to Washington as the great man, but he includes quotation marks. <laughs> right. So he's using this, but it's very revealing. I think about Hamilton's own character. That is, he is, he himself considers himself uh, to, to at least have the, the, uh, the capacity to be a great man himself. And he's, seems to me he's jealous of, of that kind of honor or reputation from a very young age. You mentioned, you know, he ends up writing under Publius. Before he writes his Publius, he starts writing under the pseudonym Caesar. Yeah. Right? Very ambitious. I think, I think it's John Jay. It, it may have been Madison, but I think it was John Jay who said, maybe that's not such a good idea. And after Brutus? Or, or was it? Well, that's why Brutus took his name. Brutus yeah, and the Federalist, right? So. But but why do you choose Caesar? I think there may be something very symbolic in the choice of the name that's a reflection of Hamilton's own character. Can I, there's some, I mean, I, I, is it okay to kind of walk through a text a little bit? And Absolutely. I, I'm hoping that's what, we're do, what, okay. we're, what we'll do. So, so. I, I just want to – I'll take a crack at this. This is, the, this is the thing that kind of intrigued me most going through the primary readings. And since you asked two questions, I think that, uh, you know, what is, what is the real Hamilton about? What's, what's really going on in Hamilton's mind? And is what is his republicanism such as it is? Because he says that he's a republican. Uh, and then why Caesar, right? So Caesar reveals kind of a deep ambition. Um, it reveals uh, sort of I mean, it reveals a sort of a preference for Caesarism, right? Sort of a monarch or somebody who's very impressive. And so as you as I read and as I reread many of these uh, pieces, I mean the the sort of profundity of thought is is evidence. I and mean, he seems like a, a serious thinker of the highest regard. I mean, he penned what fifty some fifty something of the eighty five. Federalist Papers, so he penned the great majority mm-hmm. of the Federalist Papers. So he's a, a huge defender of the United States Constitution when it came out. And so then I'm, you know, I'm reading these notes on the Federal Convention, and I'm thinking, this does this seem like the product of a great mind? I mean, is, and so as I try to work through this, it seems problematic. I mean, um, 
as I work through it, as I walk through it, I mean, it seems like a really big blunder. Uh, given that this is private, maybe we can sort of excuse it, given that it's secret and then the notes won't come out. But I mean, what, as I read, as I read through this, uh, his, the Hamilton plan, I, I just sort of, I mean, he, he defends England, for God's sake. England's the best, you know, these, these are people who just fought a war against him. He's like, they've got the best constitution. They're really awesome. We should be more like them. And I imagine if I'm in the audience and I'm a patron, I'm like, what the hell? who's this guy think he is? And, and so, I, you know, I just, as I got there scratching my head thinking about, usually anytime I teach a text and if anybody has, has had me there, I sort of begin with questions of author, audience, and title. And we've already talked about who, and, uh, who he is, and we'll, we'll talk more and more about it. There's no title for this particular piece, but we can think about the audience. Like who, in the notes on the federal convention, who is Hamilton? Who's he talking to? Who's he trying to persuade? Because I mean, you get this full-throated defense of monarchy, basically. Yeah. And so it's sort of it's puzzling, and I, I couldn't really make it sense of it. And so I, I I went back and I just sort of tried to look at where things stood, and I, I sort of sketched out some important dates in the Constitutional Convention just to kind of situate myself, see if that made any sense. And uh, I'm, I'm sure that many of you know this, but it starts in May of 1787, May 14th exactly, uh, and then May 29th, so two weeks later roughly, uh, Randolph presents. The Virginia plan, Madison's Virginia plan, which has been debated for about two weeks. Uh, it, on the And it's being criticized heavily, it seems to me. Um, so it, at this point, it seems like this is when uh, the New, New Jersey plan is, is introduced. And the, 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 it seems as though the New Jersey plan is meant as a countermeasure against the Virginia plan. Um, and the argument seems to be that the Virginia plan is presenting what would be a highly nationalized government, um, a national government, a consolidated government. And so the New Jersey plan comes forward and says, look, we, we actually want a, a federal plan. Like we want to remain a federal government. Uh, and the New Jersey plan strikes me as purely federal because according to uh, Patterson, the Virginia plan calls for a supreme national government. So the New Jersey plan says, let's just leave the Articles of Confederation intact. The states will remain sovereign, but we'll give them some new powers. They can do taxes and these kinds of things. So this is on uh, the 14th, 15th, he introduces the plan, and it gets debated June 16th through 19th. Right. And the 18th, the middle of those three days, is when Hamilton gives this speech. Yeah. No, this context is really important, Greg. Sorry to interrupt. It. No, no, but, of course. I mean, yeah, so in my mind, the Virginia plan is sort of, I mean, a, a boxing metaphor. It's on the ropes. I mean, it, it's sort of. Patterson's beating up on it, and there's some question about what to do. And so as I think about the audience, you know, the audience is sort of skeptical of the Virginia plan. They hear the New Jersey plan, and they're like, oh, sounds good. Sounds kind of like what we have. And so I just, what in the world is Hamilton trying to do here? That, that's kind of the question that I have in mind. Yeah. And as I, as I go through it, as I, as I, I try to read it, um, let's see if I can find it. Yeah, I've got it. So if you pull up the Teaching American History um, site, or if you pull up, I printed out like I did, it says, this is an introduction, so this is not by Hamilton, but it says, on June 18th, Hamilton expressed his displeasure with both the Virginia plan and the New Jersey plan. So he's, <laughs> I'm yeah. not interested in either. Okay, so who are you hoping to persuade here that what you're trying to do? So I don't know. So uh, these are, of course, Madison's notes on the federal convention. So the first paragraph when he starts speaking, Madison says, Mr. Hamilton had hitherto uh, been silent on the business before the convention, so Hamilton hadn't spoken yet. Partly from respect to others who are superior abilities, whose superior abilities, age, and experience rendered him unwilling to bring forward ideas dissimilar to theirs, and partly from his delicate situation with respect to his own state, New York, uh, to whose sentiments, as expressed by his colleagues, he could by no means accede. 
The crisis, however, which now marked our affairs, was too serious to permit any scruples whatsoever to prevail over the duty imposed on every man to contribute his efforts for the public safety and happiness. He was obliged, therefore, to declare himself unfriendly to both plans. So he doesn't like either plan. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, but there's a Virginia contingent and there's a New Jersey contingent. And so who's he, is he trying to win one side over the other? He's just, how do you? this is fascinating. I think it, it, it may be important to note that um, Hamilton and Madison um, are, uh, I, I, would, I don't think it's an overstatement to, to say that they're, they're essentially on the same team throughout the convention, at least when, when Hamilton's there, right? Because <laughs> Hamilton's not there for a large part of the convention either, which is another So, then, so why, why get up but, and, and disavow uh, the guy whose team you've been on the entire time? Well, so this is, so here's, <laughs> they've, Madison and Hamilton have known each other a long time. And the sure. fact that they served together in the Confederation Congress and, and, and they've, they've actually been friends. And I would think political um, allies. Uh, I agree. From the 1780s on, because they, yeah. they have, they have been pretty consistently from 1780 on been voicing their displeasure with the defects of the Articles of Confederation. Absolutely. And it's interesting, you can even go back and read some of the debates in the Confederation Congress where Hamilton is complaining about, the, about Congress and the articles and what's wrong with it. And uh, Madison will occasionally do the same. But um, so there's a long history between them of sort of working together, although, although they don't always work together in perfect harmony. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a kind of usefulness, I think, from Madison's perspective of a Hamilton uh, in his willingness to sort of stand up and say what some might consider to be outrageous things. So are you still there? Am I, am I frozen? No, I, I, I can hear you. It looks like Greg's frozen for some reason. So, um, so, I mean, there's a great instance in the, the records of the Confederation Congress where uh, Madison is trying to introduce, I think an amendment uh, that would, um, uh, that would, uh, allow for certain votes to be taken without a, on a, to reduce the quorum requirement so that not every, it wasn't a majority of all the states, but a majority of the states present, I, I believe. And, and at one point, they're debating back and forth on this, and Hamilton gets fed up and says, look, come on, you guys, just cut right to it. The problem is the states, they won't let anything get done. And Madison makes a note, and these are Madison's notes of the debates uh, in the Confederation Congress. And Madison notes, and thus Hamilton let the cat out of the bag and ruined our chances <laughs> for getting this amendment passed. But my point is, it seems like, Rob, if, uh, Greg, I don't know if you're back or not, but um, Rob, jump in, please, if you, if you like. But it seems like there's a kind of usefulness to a guy like Hamilton making right. these position statements, as long as he doesn't go too far uh, and sort of overdo it. So, Well, I, maybe the usefulness is that he makes the Virginia plan seem moderate. I mean, by, by defining sort of this new, uh, you know, people talk about the Overton window. You know, it's, it's, it's the, the space within which public debate can take place. And by expanding that space, um, by including more extreme nationalistic views, he therefore makes the Virginia plan seem more moderate. I, I can't speak to his motivations, but that may well have been the effect. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I get disconnected oh, there, but that's okay, that's, go ahead. it sounds like you guys were picking up the direction I was headed. I mean, if, uh, a couple paragraphs down, he says, the plan proposed, the New Jersey plan departs from the federal idea. And the next paragraph says, look, what we're going to do is you're, you're actually going to make a national government. So it's, it's like he's, to me, it sounds like he's saying, okay, you're saying Madison's government is a national government. 
No, I'll I'll show you. I'll show you what a national government looks like. And and yeah. I think Rob was just saying precisely this. So I mean, Madison and, and the Federalist actually admits that his is kind of a middle ground. It's not simply federal. And so you've now, I think you now have an extreme version that Hamilton has. That he's saying, look, yeah, he's offering something that, look, this we have a president that's going to be elected for life. The Senate's going to be elected for life, and indirectly, um, and they're going to be there's going to be a national court in every state. I mean, and so this kind of scares people back to where they're thinking, okay, maybe the Virginia plan isn't as crazy as we thought it was. So, I mean, sorry, I got yeah. muted out there. No, that's okay. that's okay. But another, I think another interesting aspect of this, Craig, is to, it, again thinking of the speech in the context in which it's yeah. given. There, the opposition to the Virginia plan, uh, Patterson and Brearley and a lot of other delegates. One of the arguments they're making is that because it's shifting away from a, 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 a governmental system that is deeply rooted in the states toward a national government is that it will undermine the ideas of republicanism as they understood it. Yes. Which placed great emphasis on local concerns and interests, the importance of rights and liberties, the defense of rights and liberties, as well as sort of the general regulation of morality on the state level. So the shift from the states to the national government is an attack on republicanism. Yes. It will undermine republicanism. And what's interesting is... Um, in speech from Hamilton, I almost get the sense that he is, um, as you say, Greg, he's saying, I'll show you, what, I'll show you uh, what a real national government would look like. It's almost as though Hamilton um, is saying, what we really want is efficient government, but we need to, to imitate, we need to maybe uh, uh, borrow and imitate the things that the British model does well, the monarchical model does well. And incorporate them into our own system, my system, my national plan, as far as Republican principles will allow, right? Which, so, yeah. so he's even he's even batting back against this emphasis on it's not Republican enough. Well, well, Hamilton says we want to we want to make it as Republican as possible, but you can't you can't allow Republicanism and the ideas connected to Republicanism to stand in the way of establishing a government that does the things it really needs to do. And um, I mentioned earlier, um, uh, uh, and I'll stop talking. I'm, I'm talking too much now. Um, from 1780 on, Madison and Hamilton are complaining about the, the articles and, and pointing out the vices or defects of the articles. And Madison's pretty consistent in his objections. And Madison is, uh, Madison's objections are very strongly uh, uh, centered around the idea of it's not, it, it, it doesn't allow for a, a, a national government that can do what a, a good Republican government would do. So where's security for rights? Where's security for religious liberty and these sorts of things? But if you read Hamilton's criticisms of the articles, it's almost entirely centered on efficiency and energy. Mm -hmm. What's missing? Energy, right? So Hamilton, there's a great letter, Rob, I know you're familiar with it, Greg, you may be familiar with it too. Uh, Hamilton wrote this great letter to James Duane in 1780, before the articles were ever officially even ratified, complaining about the problems with the articles. And the main problem is a lack of energy. It doesn't get things done. But, um, but on the other hand, back to the June 18th speech, Craig, monarchies tend to get things done, right? That's right. <laughs> Maybe, you know, not traditionally in a Republican way, but what it seems like Hamilton's trying to do here is say, what we've got to do is create a national government that that is efficient like a monarchy, but is Republican enough to, you know, to take those, you know, considerations of rights and liberties uh, into account. But uh, that's 
I don't know. Again, I'm sorry I'm talking too much here, but I'm, I'm no, running. I think that's right. And I think even the idea that, that Republican government can't survive or function if it doesn't incorporate some of these other elements that allow it to be more efficient and energetic and these kinds of things. That, that's, those are the requisite means for carrying out Republican government. Yeah. That you can't have Republican government without this, in fact. And I think uh, maybe all of this underscores uh, a misconception that many Americans today have uh, about the origins of American government. And I, I think a lot of people believe that what the founders had in mind was a creation of a democracy. And I, I don't think that democracy, I'm fairly certain, in fact, democracy is not their end. Um, their end for most of them is, is liberty. Maybe what sets Hamilton apart is uh, he would even subordinate liberty to energy and efficacy. And, you know, his experience as an officer in the Continental Army um, and I think the bitterness that he and other officers felt about the incapacity of government um, under the Articles and the government of the Continental Congress to adequately provide for the Army, um, you know, would cause him to, to feel this way. Um, but you know, whether it's energy or whether it's liberty, um, democracy is a means to an end uh, greater than itself. It's not an end in and of itself. And that's, yeah, that's the case for Hamilton. Really, really well put, Rob. So, I mean, again, I, my sense is Hamilton was not, a, he didn't think liberty was irrelevant. But without energy and government, <laughs> liberty doesn't exist for very long, right? That's in, right. In other words, you've got, to, you've got to create a government that provides for security. Uh, both domestic and foreign, right? In a way, or all the all these rights and liberties that, that these um, you, you know Republican lowercase r sort of Republicans from the from the revolution are are clamoring for, and they'll be non-existent. So, so the so so maybe the means to the, the kind of government the yeah the end is a government that will secure liberty, but the requisite means, as Hamilton says in other Federalist papers, which we don't have, so it's kind of unfair to bring them up, but you know, Federalist 23, right? The means have to be proportioned to the end. So I think that's right. And I think maybe it brings up yet another thing that's very difficult for people today to fully appreciate. Um, I don't think it's a particularly controversial thing to say that the, the national government that we currently have is much larger and does much more than what the founders envisioned. And, you know, maybe that's a good thing or maybe that's a bad thing, but I think that's a thing. We could objectively agree upon that. Yeah. So we don't appreciate the fact that in the 1780s, um, many people thought, sure, too much government is a threat to liberty. But there were also plenty of people who feared that the, the reality was we had too little government and that that posed an even greater threat to liberty. And I think Hamilton clearly is one of those people. Yeah. And I would I would tend to include Washington in that camp as well, yeah. at least in this in this time period. So. So, uh, Rob, but so on the one hand, the United States government is doing a lot more. Uh, has it also become more democratic? And that's a great question. At, I guess another question is: so as it's doing more, is it doing it lethargically or is it doing it energetically? You know, would this would this be a sort of Hamiltonian, like it's, it's doing things, it's getting things done, or is it sort of it's become democratic and maybe it's lost this monarchical element? I mean, he's clearly opposed to monarchy, I think, but he does think there ought to be a monarch monarchical element sort of mixed into the Republican government. I don't know if that's a – and what you said triggered that question in my mind. I mean, okay, well, now we're doing more. Why isn't that a good thing? Why isn't that energetic? Why isn't that getting things done? It's, it's a great question. I'm not sure that I have the answer. I'm not a political scientist. I'm a historian. But 
you know, one thought that comes to mind for whatever it's worth is that while the presidency in form um, is not monarchical in the way that Hamilton envisioned, perhaps we could say that in, in terms of scope and power, um, our modern so-called imperial presidency, you know, where with a pen or a phone or an executive order, um, policy could be changed, you know, without the consent of Congress, um, you know, through our large, expansive national bureaucracy, um, you know, perhaps in some ways it is energetic, despite, you know, the apparent uh, difficulties that the, the various branches have working together. Yeah, I mean, if I, if this is a great question, if I can just go back to the, the, the Hamilton plan at the convention. Uh, yeah, sure. And I'm looking at you know, his actual, his actual plan. Um, and I'm noticing in his mind, uh, he, he includes several things that seem that would probably seem to be, would be thought of as departures from a sort of a traditional monarch or, or at least the British model. Right. And, uh, so for example, the, the, you know, when you talk about the, the legislative powers divided into two bodies, one of which is elected by the people. So mm-hmm. there's a direct election by the people. So there's a, there's a democratic element to it. Right. At least in that in that particular branch, and um, but then I go down and I you know clearly the executive is pretty strong in the Hamilton plan, uh, which is consistent with most of his complaints about the articles of real lack of executive authority, right? But but even when he talks about the powers of the executive, it seems like the, the real strength of the executive or what he calls the governor lies in its authority over the states. And less so than its authority over the the legislative branch at the national level. So even you know, look, who has the sole power of declaring war? According to Hamilton, that's the Senate. That's a that's a, a you know could be considered a departure from traditional monarchy. Uh, monarchy. Um, the approval of treaties, right? So he's so Hamilton is is anticipating some of these powers that will actually end up in the hands of Congress and not in the hands of the executive. Which, which traditionally may, you know, um, may have been in the hands of the monarch, but, but I, you know, but the, uh, but so, so back to the context that you were framing for us, Craig. Some of the more controversial aspects of his plan have to do with the fact that the governor is, uh, or the, you know, the national executive. I'm trying to find it. Well, he has a veto over any state law. Yeah. And and the better to prevent the the passage of bad state laws. The governors of each of each state are appointed by yeah. uh, by the national government, right? This is a national plan. <laughs> so it really seems like what a lot of people have read this thinking this is Hamilton calling for something like a monarch, and that may be partly true, but it's really uh, it seems to me a statement, an, uh, an argument against the the, the Randolph or the um, uh, Patterson plan, the New Jersey plan, right? Which, that's is, right. which is saying. Yeah, there's really nothing wrong with the articles. We just need to give them a tax power, and everything will be hunky dory. But so, but getting to his mind, I mean, for me, this shows a number of things. I mean, or at least raises a number of questions in my mind regarding his mind. One is, I, I you know, I take him at his word that he's committed to Republican governments. I mean, he says it again uh, in the letter to Carrington, right? I'm, a, I'm I've been attached and committed to Republican theory my whole career, and what, by which I mean, I'm interested in equality of political rights. To people. Yeah. So there's like this idea of liberalism and protection of rights. <clears throat> but uh, I mean, also there's, there's, um, I mean, this may go with fashioning his identity and fashioning, making himself into a real man. There's a, there's a certain kind of willingness to play certain parts 
or or to to invent things or to be crafty or something like this. I mean, the, I mean, let me try this another way. He knew how to practice rhetoric. It seems to me that's a yep. part of his mind, yeah. um, which involves more than simple, straightforward speech. I think. I mean, he's you know he's he's writing for Washington, for example, in some instances. So and so you see that he's able to do this. He's able to take on certain minds and articulate visions. So. You can bear your soul in a private letter to a friend, but you don't. But it's not always a good idea for a politician to bear his soul to the public, right? No, exactly. Because yeah, uh, right. you may see some things there that aren't that uh, uh, aren't that uh, uh, you know sort of uh, in harmony with public sentiment. Which leads to a point, that point Andrew just submitted in the chat feature in light of this conversation we've been having. Something to keep in mind, Andrew writes. There's a difference between getting things done and doing in a way that reflects the will of the people, and that's the challenge. So that sort of ties back to, you know, Greg, your point, and, and Rob, your point about how democratic does this thing have to be from Hamilton's perspective. But so, uh, yeah, I think I think it's all a great point. And uh, just to go back to a question we were pondering a moment ago, you know, what what makes Hamilton tick? Uh, what causes Hamilton to have his sort of nationalist vision? Um, it's always difficult to say, and I think we sometimes overplay um, biographical details in determining how someone thinks the way that they do. But it's worth pointing out that one thing that makes Hamilton different from, you know, everyone else is in the, the pantheon of the, the founding fathers is that he really doesn't have a fixed loyalty to a colony or, or then after. Right. It's a very good point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's, from really Caribbean. he's born into obscurity. Uh, he is, uh, you know, he arrives in in, really good point. in the colonies as a college student. Uh, his identity as, as an American begins as an American, as an officer in the Continental Army. Um, so he has this sort of national perspective, even before, in technical terms, we have a nation. And that's even a, in this, this speech, he stands apart from the New York delegation, right? I mean, that's, yeah, an ability yeah. to sort of, yeah, he's not, that's really good. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, from the other the other two delegates who are uh, Yates and Lansing, who are entirely in the camp of uh, of the Patterson plan. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And maybe even maybe, maybe even the Patterson plan isn't good enough for those guys because yeah. it's it's too radical. But, yeah, that's right. Rob mentions Hamilton's place in the pantheon. I, I sort of I'm always one of my favorite shows is The Wire, a Baltimore TV show. It's on it was on HBO, one of the best shows of all time. There's a scene where they talk about Hamilton in the first season, and it, it cracks me up. They, some guy, they, they're making counterfeit money, and the guy says, you know, this, they don't have the right president on there. It's not. It's supposed to be Hamilton. It's not even Hamilton. And one of the characters goes, man, he wasn't president. And the other char- drug dealer goes, man, they're going to put nobody on money, but it wasn't president. So I, <laughs> well, it's funny, it's because, I mean, this, this maybe speaks to, to uh, speaks also to Hamilton's conception of executive power. Um, you know, during his time as Secretary of the Treasury under President Washington, you know, on more than one occasion, he referred to uh, Washington's presidency as my administration. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, I think in some ways he saw himself as a prime minister. That's yeah. a great point. Yeah, that's a fantastic point. Yeah, yeah again, I, I, this um, is not being tied to a, a, or blinded by sort of a, a, a loyalty to a state. That's a really, I think, a really great point. I actually hadn't thought about that. I hadn't either. Yeah. Um, and and that and that, that may. Um, well, I was trying to think of, uh, of, I was thinking of his earliest piece that we have, or one of the, at least in terms of the readings that we've posted, is, is uh, the farmer refuted Pete's, 
which is a very early writing from his. Uh, this is even before he's, you know, in the in the military serving for Washington, uh, which is a remarkable uh, refutation of a of the British way of thinking about Republican government. And again, written either when he's 17 or 19. Again, we're not quite sure, right? He's right. really young. And I've always just wondered, Rob, why? What would take? What would make a 17-year-old, let's say 17, write such a a fierce defense of of uh, or a criticism of uh, the British understanding of republicanism, and a fierce defense of his understanding of republicanism when he's not really even involved in in politics, let alone uh, the military at this point. But and that is a great question, Chris. And I, you know, I can't help but I don't want to take anything away from the sincerity of Hamilton's views, uh, which I don't question, but I also don't question his ambition. Um, and I think, you know, this is a great opportunity for Hamilton to pick a fight. Um, and, you know, while he's writing <laughs> under a pseudonym, I'm, I'm sure that there are people who know that, in fact, it is young Alexander Hamilton. And uh, even in 1769, so at that point, he's either, what, 12 or 14 um, he writes a letter where he would willingly, he writes, I would willingly risk my life, though not my character, to exalt my station. I wish there was a war. Oh, yeah, that's a great letter. <laughs> and I mean, you know, what is, war. <laughs> one, one is coming or, you know, in a way it's already started. And and so Hamilton sees this, I think, as an opportunity um, to oppose, you know, Samuel Seabury, who's uh, writing in opposition to is this Anglican clergyman, royalist. Um, you know, what a wonderful foil to himself as yeah. a patriot. I think it's also worth noting he picks this fight with, with Seaver, who's a pretty well-known, he's a well-known figure and supporter of the British Empire. Yeah. Uh, so he's picking a fight with a big, big, big name, a big guy, not just sure. So, and, and again, maybe this is, um, uh, you know, it comes from my reading of sort of um, uh, ancient figures, or classical figures. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, the the, the greater the, the bigger the fight, the more dangerous the fight. The more you risk, the greater the honor. Yeah. Right. That's right. I mean, that's a this is partly what has always fascinated Hamilton. Uh, fascinated me about Hamilton is his character is, in some ways, it seems consistent to the sort of ambition of a of an Alexander or a or a Cyrus or you know somebody like this in ancient Alcibiades. Or Alcibiades, yeah. yeah. Alcibiades might be the better example there, actually. Yeah. Insofar as Alcibiades was, uh, if you guys don't know Alcibiades, my apologies, but I mean, he was he was a man who aspired to the greatest of political ambitions, but who still wanted to, I think he was misunderstood, people thought he wanted to be a tyrant. I think he still wanted to keep his native Athens a democracy. He just wanted to be the first guy in charge of the democracy. So there's, <laughs> a, sim there's a similar kind of, I mean, he's, he's committed to Republican government, but yeah, the ambition, especially in this first piece, really does shine through. Like you said, I read this and thought, God, this is a teenage, this is a, this is a really sharp, witty teenage kid who's yeah. picking apart. I mean, this, it's very impressive in a way. Yeah. Um, so and I, we, we, speaking of classical figures, we, we brought up earlier Caesar and, yeah, um, that's good. You know, it's, it's maybe worth pointing out and we have to take it from Thomas Jefferson for this one. So, uh, you know, clearly he, he had a dog in this fight, but uh, he, he wrote in uh, one of his private notes, which uh, later was put into this collection that one editor uh, dubbed his Anas. But essentially it's a collection of um, notes that Jefferson supposedly um, took down soon after conversations took place um, that he compiled, uh, you know, into um, this collection of, of rumors and table talk and 
uh, everything else. Well, apparently the story is Jefferson is at a dinner party and Hamilton is present as well. And the question comes up, you know, who's, who is the greatest man who has ever lived? And Jefferson says, you know, my great trinity of mortals um, is Bacon, Newton, and Locke. You know, so Francis Bacon, Isaac Newton, John Locke. Um, whereas, according to Jefferson, Hamilton then retorted that the greatest man who ever lived is Caesar. So, you know, that's, wow. that's meant to scare, you know, because <laughs> crossed the Rubicon and, uh, yeah. you know, broke, broke his leash. But, but then again, this raises another interesting point about in terms of the the, the reputation of Hamilton, but also the the image of Hamilton that Jefferson and others worked hard to, I think, draw out and cultivate. When do you know when he's serious and when he's trying to intimidate? I mean, is he really believes that Caesar is the, um, you know, so, you know, what's he saying for a fact and what does he really believe? And it's sometimes easy to, uh, to, to, to turn to, to use Hamilton's own uh, words against him in, in future times. So even this idea that, you know, hey, Monarchy is the best system in the world. All we need to do is is uh, republicanize it to a certain extent. That seems to be a pretty consistent ham arg- uh, argument from Hamilton. But that, of course, proves uh, to be useful ammunition for um, for the Republicans in the, in the 1790s to say, look, well, he's he's openly a monarchist, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I mean, there's the danger of again, um, you know, of uh, of speaking for a fact, and we know we know how easy it is for people to use words against us uh, out of context. But um, I, he he does that as well, though. At Hamilton, he does that. Too. Oh, he does. Actually, I thought in the farmer refuted. I, I thought, man, how beautiful to align this pastor with Hobbes. I mean, what a great way oh. to sort of. I mean, what a great you know Hobbes, the the infamous atheist. All it is is matter in motion. You're yeah. deriving all of your political thought from this this atheist. You know, I, I thought that was brilliant. So yeah. Yeah, Hamilton's above that. Yeah. No, no, sure, sure, that's right. No. Yeah. I'd like to throw out a question for for the two of you, um, and and maybe especially uh, Greg. But uh, you know, to what extent? So we've been singing Hamilton's praises as, as a writer and political athlete, um, but I think it's possible that at some junctures he's his own worst enemy. And um, you know, Chris, you were mentioning uh, things that Hamilton wrote and. Uh, it, that it's surprising that he would write these for public consumption of all the things that he wrote that is maybe surprising um, for public consumption. It's his defense pamphlet. Um, when James Callender uh, accused him of taking money from, from the treasury um, and, and speculating with it, investing it um, through the hands of a man named James Reynolds. And right. uh, James Reynolds, uh, you know, is this kind of shady shifty character um, and Hamilton, I think, very much wanted to defend his reputation, and he did so in a in a pretty effective way. You know, he was accused of one crime; he admitted to another. He wrote a long pamphlet saying, "Well, I did give money to James Reynolds, but it wasn't public money; it was my own personal money, and I wasn't giving it to him uh, to invest. Instead, I was giving it to him as hush money because he had discovered that I, a married man, Alexander Hamilton." was having an affair with James Reynolds's wife, Maria Reynolds. I mean, that's a pretty effective defense, but it's uh, a startling and stunning um, and you know, potentially career-sinking. Yeah. <laughs> so is it better to just come right out in the open if the timing's right? To I guess so. I guess that was his calculation. But that is a remarkable piece that you're referring to, that pamphlet. So 
it's not, I mean, in a way it seems like, to, it seems to me that it's the flip side of this passionate, ambitious writing. I mean, um, the same, I, I mean, this is the, a writing of a young man earlier, but I mean, I think there's something like politically ambitious people who are all, the idea is that they're, they're pursue or love honor. I don't want to psychologize too much. I don't know. You can only know from, from what we read, but it's, it's not surprising to me that someone who's, who's this passionate and can, can elevate language in this rhetorical fashion would, would do this. I mean, we, I mean, even as death is, you know, of course, uh, in many ways, uh, uh, another manifestation of the same problem. But I mean, the, the, I mean, how, how can you write 51 Federalist papers? I mean, there has to be a kind of fire in the belly that's animating all this, right? As a young man taking on this well-renowned New York loyalist. I mean, there's a certain, I don't want to say lawlessness, that's probably not the right word, but there's a certain kind of dare, maybe daring, maybe that's the right way to put it. And so you see that they seem linked to me. And, and there's, there's a courage in his convictions that yeah, yeah. maybe causes him sometimes to go too far, at least yeah. rhetorically. So in looking at Federalist One, um, I couldn't help but note the degree to which Hamilton questions the motives of his political opponents. Mm. You know, he essentially says uh, they, they want to remain big fish in small ponds. And uh, he writes that, um, you know, tyrants are more likely that, to begin as uh, demagogues than anything else. Um, so he's really letting these guys have it, which is striking when you consider that his main objective um, through the, the Federalist Papers, I, I would think, would be to win over some of his opponents and bring them on board. Um, not to vilify them or demonize them. That's a great point. And I, again, I study Madison a little bit more than Hamilton, but Matt, Madison, when he writes, um, he generally takes a softer approach to the anti-federalists, mm -hmm. with one exception, and that's in Federalist 38, where he says these guys are totally inconsistent, incoherent, they can't get their act together, right? He, he Madison engages in a pretty... Uh, uh, strong rhetorical uh, condemnation of, of the Anti-Federalists. But, but you're right. And, I, and uh, Rob, if I can um, point us to Federalist One, since you brought it up, mm -hmm. of course, this is a great opening to the Federalist Papers. I mean, it's one of, it's got one of the most you know, memorable uh, lines or a few sentences about you know, the, the great question right, that, that is facing Americans now is whether um, uh, societies of men, I'm looking at the document, are really capable or not of establishing good government from reflection and choice, or whether they are forever destined to depend for their political constitutions on accident and force. That's a beautiful way of phrasing the, the importance of the question, right? Um, and he says that falls to the, to the people of this country to decide that question. But, but I'm also struck by the, by the fact that what Hamilton's also saying is, he already knows what the right answer to that question is. So the real question is whether the American people are capable of agreeing with him or not. Because of because clearly, he's, I think he's... He knows it's possible? Well, look, I mean, it's a great question. Yeah. Uh, can, can people choose good government from reflection and choice or not? Well, if they don't choose this constitution, the answer is no. Yes, exactly. Right? So he's... So it's a great uh, sort of... Um, elevated noble question in a certain sense, but but he's but he, he's also implying here in the very beginning that the real question is whether I don't want to overdo this. Are the American people smart enough to to choose well in this decision? That's right. And and I think that that helps 
maybe at least explain a little bit of the vehemence with which he attacks the, his opponents and the rest of Federalist One, as Rob is saying. So, but. I'm also struck by the, I mean, the, all that is fantastic, but I'm not, just given our previous conversation, what we're talking about, the daring and the, the courage of his convictions coming out here, kind of in what you just said, but also in the fact that this this seems to me to imply, well, it, it says more or less outright, this has never happened before. And and right. so there's the kind of, we are uniquely situated, and there's a sort of, therefore, we are sort of at, at sort of, I mean, I don't want to make the Hegelian or something, but like, we're, we're at the peak of history right now. We have, we have an opportunity, <laughs> no one's ever had it. Sorry, now you have to buy donuts. But the other thing, um, not just that, I mean, it's now less clear, but still implied, I think, is that there really haven't been good governments either. Yeah. Um, and so it's not, not only has this, this opportunity never been afforded, but uh, I mean, you know, he says good things about Great Britain and whatever, and it's not completely ironclad, but the, the implication is, yeah, maybe accidentally there's been a, a, for a brief period, a good government here and there, but not really. Yeah. This, is, this is the first time we're going to actually do this. Can I, can I just jump in for just one second? I'm sorry for being selfish here, but, but the way you put that, I, I want to add to what I was saying earlier. There's a kind of, because when I read the way Hamilton words that, uh, there's a, there's a, a, I get the sense that, I don't want to say it's smugness or anything like that, but there is a kind of pride pride in his part that he already knows the answer. And now, now the question is whether or not the American people can, 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 can you know, come through and make the right decision. But the way you're phrasing it is really important because if they actually do it, and maybe for the first time actually in human history establish good government through reflection and choice, the honor is not just Hamilton's. The greater the share of honor for the American people. Yeah. And he would be part of a, of a nation and a people that has done maybe the greatest thing in human history, a thing that's never been done before. So I hadn't thought about it that way, Greg, right. in light of the way you're phrasing it. Just one other thing that's occurring to me, just in light of the, I wouldn't have brought this up and I wouldn't have thought about it, but for the conversation. But so the idea is here, what this paper is written to, you know, I author title con, uh, context audience, right? This is written to the people of New York to try and persuade them to ratify the Constitution. This is so they're presenting themselves, as we mentioned, as one person when they're in fact three. So I mean, again, rhetoric. I mean, there's a there's a kind. I mean, what what is the goal of the federal papers? It's nudging the American people to make the correct decision. But if I were being a, a little um, uh, naughty, I, I might say not entirely through honest means. Mm. Um, yeah. There's, I mean, and, and maybe by the way, exaggerating the nastiness of the, the anti-federalists, for example, uh, presenting themselves as one. I mean, I, there's on and on. But go ahead. Sorry. No, I mean, there are many great and these a lot of them are Hamiltons. There are instances of straw man arguments, yes. uh, especially yeah. in the early uh First thirteen papers, uh, you know these. Uh, is it which? Uh, uh, where is it? I'm trying to remember. Um, is it number nine where he talks about the advocates of despotism? So, so there, anybody who's opposed to the Constitution would be an advocate advocate of despotism. Uh, uh, he talks about people far gone in utopian speculation that the states could ever live peacefully together in a disunited way. So. Which is why, by the way, one of the things when he says it's either reflection and choice or accident and force, I've always thought, why not fraud and force? Why, why accident and force? I mean, it, it seems like the more common way that that's put. Uh, it, see, he sees he's saying there's a there's an appropriate place in Republican government for this kind of discourse. Yeah. Um, just a just a quick thought. Uh, when Madison starts writing the Federalist Papers, or really picks up the bulk in the middle uh, in Federalist 37, which is a kind of 
new introduction to part two of the Federalist essay. Yeah. He picks that question back up. Now, it's actually in Federalist 38, but he but Madison uses force and fraud. Yeah, that's what I, exactly. Exactly. So, and so I, I wonder if that's an intentional, like, maybe there is an appropriate place for. Maybe. <laughs> maybe that's too strong. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, when we think about the uh, the political athleticism of, of these guys, maybe Hamilton especially, I mean, there's probably no act of, uh, you know, political taekwondo more impressive than the fact that this series of letters is written under the title The Federalist. The fact that Hamilton oh, is able oh, to, usurp, and, yeah, yeah, that's great. to, to yeah. usurp this term from the yeah, true yeah, Federalists who are who suddenly become the anti-Federalists. <laughs> Hamilton is the rat nationalists, right? Right, right. Yeah. I mean, Hamilton, Madison, Jay are are nationalists great. in this that's debate. Um, the people in favor of the Confederation um, are suddenly turned into anti-Federalists. So he's grabbing the rhetorical high ground. That's a great point. In a very yeah. important way. I want to give him a little bit of credit, though. So in, in his, uh, you know, the letter on the constitutionality of the bank, I got to say, I was more persuaded by him than I was by the argument in McCulloch versus Maryland. I, I mean, I found that more persuasive. I mean, uh, um, he articulates why this is, I mean, we go taking this back to the uh, ener- energetic and efficient. Like, he makes the case much more clearly to me that a bank is necessary than the Supreme Court does. Mm. Um, I thought, I mean, I, I remember the last time I taught in Collar versus Maryland, I thought this is really not persuasive. It really yeah. relies upon really changing what the word necessary means. Uh, I, whereas Hamilton, I think, lays out the steps fairly clearly, like, hey, look, uh, this is what's requisite. This is what's required to do X, Y, and Z. We need it for exigency. So, I don't know. So on the one hand, I, he can do this rhetorical thing, but I mean, he, he can also do the... I think build a solid argument. Yeah. Well, when I think about the argument over the bank, um, I'm gonna I'm not gonna comment on McCulloch v. Maryland because, except to say that that <laughs> the lack of persuasiveness for me there consists in the extent to which um, Marshall stretches, as you were suggesting, he really. Necessary. Yeah. That's right. Means, but, means it's convenient. Doesn't he say convenient? What's the word he uses? Uh, yeah. He, anyway. Well, the the real the real issue for me with McCulloch v. Maryland is the extent to which the court now is brought in yeah, yeah. to interpret the Constitution, right? But but um, nice sleight of hand. But to go but to yeah but to go back to the debate between Jefferson and Hamilton over the national the constitutionality of the National Bank. Um, we have the document from Hamilton here. We don't have Jefferson's opinion. That's right. But it's interesting to note. Um, that they both begin from a certain kind of position. And if their initial position is sound, then the arguments that they make yeah. following that are pretty sound. So Hamilton starts from a position that, look, there are just certain inherent powers that every good government must have. Must have. That must have in order to do the things that governments are expected to do. And Rob, I know you're familiar with Jefferson's argument, which is he starts from a very different perspective, right? Um, Although I'd say at this point in time, maybe Jefferson isn't the person we should be focused on. Really, the leader of the opposition to Hamilton's plans in the early part of the 1790s is not Thomas Jefferson, it's James Madison. That's true. That's a great point. And, you know, maybe this is an opportunity to bring in Hamilton's letter to Edward Carrington. Oh, yeah, perfect. Um, because, you know, essentially, when I when I teach this, this letter, maybe I oversimplify it. You can tell me if I'm wrong um, or, you know, we need to polish some of the details. It's a stunning letter. It's a striking one. And it's almost 
there's almost a level of immaturity or sort of like junior high school to it. So <laughs> it it's as if, uh, you know, Hamilton is complaining because of this falling out that he's had with James Madison, with whom he suddenly disagrees. And, you know, to, to really um, make this super accessible, it's as if uh, Hamilton and Madison have spent the summer in Philadelphia at Constitution Camp, and Thomas Jefferson has been off with his family on vacation in France. Yeah. Um, and, you know, at Constitution Camp, Hamilton and Madison couldn't have been tighter. You know, they were making uh, little, like, friendship bracelets for one another. <laughs> you know, know they're best friends forever. Everything was great. They thought they were completely simpatico. They were, you know, writing the Federalist Papers together. Um, it, each one believed that the other agreed with him entirely. And yet, you know, the new school year begins. In other words, you know, government begins under the presidency of George Washington. And uh, suddenly at lunchtime now, uh, Madison's not sitting with Hamilton. He's sitting, you know, with this kid, Thomas Jefferson, under whose, you know, influence he's fallen um, into whose orbit he's, he's, you know, been, been uh, you know, pulled in. And, um, and, and so Hamilton really seems to personalize this disagreement. Uh, yeah, Madison is the general, but Jefferson's the generalissimo. And, um, it, and, and yet Madison, for his part, seems to believe and to get to the issue of the bank, if I'm not mistaken, in Madison's notes, um, he brings up the fact that the idea of a national bank had been discussed in Philadelphia at the convention. And it was yeah. explicitly um, decided not to make it uh, an authorized you know, function of government. And, and so here's Hamilton claiming that it's constitutional. I mean, Madison thought that that was on the, on the face of things, clearly um, incorrect, and that Hamilton is, is, is stretching things and that this person with whom he thought he agreed is yeah. now manifesting as this individual who perhaps um, was lying to him the entire time yeah. and really craved much more power than he ever let on. Can I, can, Rob, can I just add salt to the wound? Sure. To, to, to the, why this is so painful for Hamilton? It was actually Madison who proposed giving the power of establishing a national bank at the convention, mm-hmm. Madison proposed the initial list of the sort of what would become the enumerated powers, one of which was uh, to establish a corporation for the purposes of a bank, essentially, right? Another was the authority to establish a national university. And, and both of those were removed. But, but now, as you say, here we are in the 1790s and Madison is leading the charge, uh, the political charge against establishing a national bank. So what, what is going on here, right? Well, Jefferson's back, as you say, so nicely. So it must be that Madison's under Jefferson's spell now and, and all of this. I mean, the pathos of this piece is really intriguing to me, right? Because I really do get the sense that he's, he's wounded here in a way. But Absolutely. Rob, I got to ask you, can I ask you, uh, uh, for, of course, Greg, to jump in. What do you, what do you think of um, uh, Hamilton's characterization of Jefferson? Jefferson drank too much of French wine. wine of French philosophy of, you know, is, is this him just lashing out, or is there any? Yes, yes, and yes. Yes, <laughs> yes. I, I think I could agree with with Greg's assessment. I, I mean, first of all, consider that Jefferson is in France to see the monarchy at its most decrepit and wicked, and the French Revolution at its most promising stage. I mean, this is Jefferson's not there for chop off their heads in the reign of terror. He's there for liberty and fraternity and equality and you know, uh, when the one of the first acts of a revolution is to 
um, free all the prisoners from the jail, you know that it's a, a corrupt regime. I mean, you know, we, we at least could say this about we're, we're generally happy that there are people in jail. The people in, the, in jail are, nowadays, we generally believe are, are dangerous, most of them. And, you know, it's probably a good thing that they're there. Um, in Revolutionary France, that, that was not the blanket assumption. So Jefferson is full of enthusiasm, of course, for the French Revolution in its early phases. I mean, the belief is that these principles that we established in America in 1776, the spirit of 1776 is now transplanting itself on the other side of the ocean, the world's second greatest superpower, France, you know, who was our ally during the American Revolution, that they have, um, you know, uh, Im imbibed from the, the cup of liberty and, you know, Jefferson has all these different metaphors for liberty, but, you know, the, the great ball of liberty, he once wrote, will roll around the globe, that our ideas are the best ones and that they're spreading. And so, of course, he's excited um, with the prospects for uh, liberty and republicanism in France. And then he comes back to America and, you know, initially the national capital was in uh, New York City. And, uh, you know, he's struck by the degree to which in some ways, we're maybe aping the monarchical um, etiquette and pageantry uh, of the European uh, continent and England itself. Yeah. And that's disturbing to him. Yeah. But this would have been pre, when he first comes back, of course, it's pre-terror. It's pre the spill right. of the French Revolution over the borders and uh, into a general war against uh, aristocratic Europe and, and these sorts of things. So, But it's funny. It's interesting how in that light, um, things that Hamilton said earlier come, can come back to bite him in the sense that they're used against him. And this earlier view that Jefferson seems to have had of the, with, with his hope for the future of the French Revolution, though his views on that seemed to change over time, he seemed to be tempered uh, in his enthusiasm when he saw how bad things got. Sure. But, but once again, his, his reputation as a lover of Rousseau and all things French, you know, uh, as a French, a radical French Democrat may have been established. And it seems to me Hamilton's willing to make use of that in his critique, or if, if not directly, at least perhaps through some of the newspapers uh, that are sort of under the influence of Hamilton, just yeah. as much as Jefferson is willing to portray Hamilton and his group as monocrats. Well, and, and that's, you know, one of the central fissures of the 1790s and the great political divide. Uh, you know, first of all, I'll point out Jefferson is not really a fan of Rousseau. He's a fan of Montesquieu, right. whose ideas are much more uh, in accordance with, with our own. But as, as the politics of the 1790s become increasingly heated and more clearly partisan, um, and we see the emergence of these two parties, the Federalists, again, you know, Hamilton takes that name for his party to suggest that that Madison and Jefferson are anti-federalists, that they were opposed <laughs> to the ratification of the Constitution, which is not true. I mean, Madison was is the father of the Constitution. That's how we remember him. And Jefferson also supported ratification. He didn't think that the Constitution was perfect. He didn't. Uh, he wanted the the president to be, you know, term limited. Uh, he thought that there should be a bill of rights. You know, so he he didn't think it was perfect, but he thought it was pretty darn solid. Um, and so Hamilton makes them into anti-federalists, um, and he tries to portray Jefferson as more of a French revolutionary than an American revolutionary. But of course, Madison and Jefferson are going to turn around, and they're going to be able to use many of Hamilton's political writings to portray him as a monarchist. Yeah. And uh, you know, in the election of 1796, when Jefferson is 
um, put forward as a candidate for the presidency against Federalist John Adams, um, you know, this, this is the divide in the public mind and um, probably the best retort that the Jeffersonian Republicans have against the charge that he's not a real American revolutionary, but the French revolutionary is the revelation. And it was a revelation. Most people at this point didn't know that Jefferson was, in fact, the author of the Declaration of Independence. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's a great point. Well, we're rapidly coming to the close of our time. These things always go by so quickly, and I always wish we had more time to, to spend on them. But there was a question earlier. I thought maybe this would be a good uh, sort of question to wrap up with because there are a number of ways you guys could approach it. Uh, this was a question from Stephanie who asked, that, uh, uh, do you believe that Hamilton was before his time with his nationalist thinking? So. But it, even if we just want to expand that a little bit, was was Hamilton ahead of his time in terms of how he thought about government, the, the way things ought to be? Was he anticipating things? Um, how do you want to? How would you answer that question? Was he before his time? I, I suspect that he was. I mean, what we mean, there's one way in which I would answer that. Yes, but here, here's why I will say no. I think he was a man very much of his time, insofar as he thought now is the time that we can make the United States become this, uh, this great Republic. So, I mean, it is, he is forward looking. I mean, it's all very forward looking. So in a way the question's right. I mean, the idea is that Hamilton saw himself, I think his great ambition was uh, in line with the great ambition that he saw for the United States. And so, so yes, I and mean, he's moving forward. Yeah. Interesting. There's a, a wonderful um, 1783 memo that Hamilton writes to George Washington, where he kind of lets slip. Uh, his his orientation, his outlook. Um, you know, he's speaking metaphorically and regarding foreign policy. And he says, you know, we have British Canada on our left and Latin America on our right. We can have and that kind of gives it away. I mean, Hamilton's outlook. He, Hamilton's looking east. He's looking across the Atlantic Ocean. He's looking toward Great Britain. Um, I think as a model for America's future. Absolutely. You know, while you could take that and use it against Hamilton and say that he's a monarchist or that he's a counter-revolutionary, he's not crazy because Great Britain at that moment in time is the um, richest, it is the strongest, and it's the second most free nation on the planet. Mm -hmm. That's very well put, yeah. And again, it's a little unfair to bring it up, but I'm reminded of Federalist 13 where he he's talking about Europe, but he's, I think, thinking of Great Britain and he... Uh, you know, talks about the empire that the British have established. And, and there's an opportunity for America to carve out its own sort of empire, mm -hmm. even if it's not political empire in the sense of the strict sense of the British model. But, but he seems like he's got a big picture view of things. So <laughs> taking these larger things in consideration. Thanks both of you very much. Uh, again, there are uh, other great, uh, you know, things that we could bring up from these, but I think we've done a great job of, um, from the documents, getting a little bit deeper into, into Hamilton's mind, and I really am grateful for your time and your thoughts this morning. So, thank you very much. Pleasure as always, Chris. All right. Hopefully, hopefully we can do it again uh, at some point. Thanks, Rob. That was great. So, yeah, thank you both very much. So, uh, and thanks for the questions from our uh, from people joining us. Um, let me just remind you about the email that you'll receive that will include your link, uh, a link for your certificate of participation. Uh, uh, this is uh, this conversational mode is pretty much how we do everything uh, with Ashbrook, including um, in these uh, seminars that we do. So if you've enjoyed this style of uh, of thinking and and and, uh, and getting into documents, 
uh, take a look into some of the other resources that Ashbrook provides. I mentioned these free one-day seminars, which we're running in over 20 states. They're entirely document-based, entirely discussion-based, and you can find out more about these webinar, or sorry, seminars uh, at the TAH.org website. Just click on seminars on the top of the screen, select one-day seminars as the category, and um, you'll see the list of, of options for you there. So take a look at those and see if you're interested in them. Our next Saturday webinar will be Henry Clay. We'll be discussing Henry Clay, and that will be on November 2nd. So hopefully I'll see uh, most of you here again for that. Until then, take care and thanks. Thank you for listening to another TAH.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs, as well as information about future programs at TAH.org slash webinars or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.